Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. through the worship, we're wrapping up our series uh, on uh, the book of Ruth. Um, And as we look at the two chapters, we obviously can't take it all in. Uh, Ruth is actually a challenging uh, text to teach in the sense that uh, so many people have done women's Bible studies on it. And you guys have all the details. And I know there's things you're dying to hear, but I know that I can't uh, tackle them all. I can't hit them all. Um, but uh, we're just going to go through and touch what we can. Uh, so far, we've looked kind of at the, the providence of God, and we've looked at this amazing sort of conversion experience uh, that Ruth had as she sort of uh, turned from her uh, land of Moab. She came back with her uh, mother-in-law, Naomi. Uh, she converted to Judaism and became a part of the family of God there. And uh, what unfolds is, of course, they come into a really dark time and in a dark place. This is the era of the judges, and they're coming in into a land that is uh, sort of half Jewish, half pagan. It's a, it's a real mix, and they're coming in impoverished, and they, they need to come in and find a relationship and find security and find a provision for themselves. And we've seen that the Lord is going to provide for them. Um, but what we want to capture this morning in particular uh, is, is what makes this story of Ruth uh, in, in so many ways, something that's just been a beautiful, beautiful uh, text that's just sort of stood the test of time uh, for centuries, both in the Jewish community and the Christian community, is that there's, there's a love story there. There's a, there's a romance in it. And so what we want to do is we want to take uh, some of those aspects of that, of that love story and bring them forward into, into our journey and our experience. Uh, the scriptures are filled uh, with uh, marriage imagery. Like there, there's tons there. Uh, if you look in Isaiah 54, 5, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he's called, right? So he's your husband. Uh, Hosea, the story of uh, this prophet who uh, essentially marries a woman who is a prostitute to, to symbolize the love of God for his people who have prostituted themselves. In, that, in Hosea 2, 16 to 23, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. Uh, we look ahead to uh, the, the book of Matthew. Uh, the kingdom of heaven will be like the ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Jesus is using this bridegroom imagery uh, in, in his teaching. In 2 Corinthians 11, 2-3, I feel a divine jealousy. This is Paul talking to this church that he's planted. I feel a divine jealousy uh, for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That's Paul looking at the church and saying, I, I, my, part of my role in introducing you to Jesus, I was kind of betrothing you to Christ uh, as your husband. Uh, that, that's an important image. Uh, Revelation uh, chapter 19, verses 7 uh, to uh, 9. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And so in the book of Revelation, as we see uh, things unfolding, this incredible, beautiful marriage imagery, uh, jumping back to Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for this incredible teaching on marriage that is there. But Paul saying, hey, this is a mystery that is profound, but I'm saying to you it refers to Christ and the church. So the whole idea of, of marriage and human marriage and how we act that out is also meant to be something that speaks to, to God's love for the church. Revelation 21, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he showed me Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come. The spirit and the bride say come. And so we have this uh, image, this thread, this theme running through all of scripture where we see ourselves as uh, God's, uh, God's bride, God's, uh, God's wife, God's betrothed, Jesus' lover. Um, and so that's, that's one of the things we need to understand is sort of a foundational or fundamental dynamic in terms of our relationship with God. And in particular, uh, what's really important in, in, the, in the biblical concept of marriage that, that seems really foreign to us is this idea of a redemptive marriage. Uh, when we think of marriage, we think of two equals beautifully uh, coming together, a husband and a wife, uh, melding their lives together, and together they make uh, decisions, together they bring their resources, uh, they come together with their careers, and they have children, and, and we see something that is, a, that is a very much a, a coming together of equals, but that doesn't quite accurately uh, represent our coming together with Christ. <laughs> I, I think there, there, there is something different in that we are coming as people who are uh, in need of redemption. We're people who are coming uh, as, as somebody who is in need of salvation, somebody who is in need of resource. It seems so foreign to us in our culture to say a woman would come into a marriage with a man and she would come in and she would say, I'm coming into this relationship because I'm impoverished, because I have no power, because I have no security. And so I want to come into the covering of this marriage relationship so that I can be provided for. That's, that's not how we think about marriage at all. But it's something that we as people uh, coming into relationship with Jesus, our Redeemer, we need to be able to picture ourselves in that place, coming into marriage, coming into relationship with him for redemption. So this picture of a redemptive marriage in the book of Ruth uh, provides a, a fairly accurate a picture of our relationship with Christ. And that's what we want to do. We want to take some, some things from that. So I want to show you how this is set up in the book of Ruth. Uh, if we look at the, the slide that says, uh, that has Ruth 2.20 on it, and we read that last week. It says, uh, Naomi is saying to Ruth, uh, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now, we don't have uh, kinsmen redeemers in our culture. That's not part of our social safety or social security network. But in, in that time, uh, the relationship uh, between a man and a woman and a marriage was part of the, the foundation or the fabric of society in terms of uh, how they understand provision. And if you look at that word in the center, that word goel, that means... Uh, that really means redeemer, that means purchaser, that means uh, savior. And so uh, Naomi is looking at Boaz and saying, this person is our kinsman redeemer. Now, now what does that mean? And to understand that, you have to go back to the book of Leviticus, uh, chapter 25, uh, verse 25, and really 25 through 27, but we're just going to read uh, 25. It says, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor, 
and must sell their, some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem it. So baked into the, the Jewish law, uh, long before the time of Ruth, was this understanding that if, if somebody in, in the society uh, becomes poor, they become impoverished, they can't look after their land, they can't take care of it, they don't have the wealth to hire workers and servants and, and, and employees to sort of work and farm that land. And this was the case with Naomi and her husband Abimelech. They left the land in poverty in the time of a famine. Uh, they presumably, when they were in Moab, expended all of their resources, uh, whatever uh, coinage or whatever wealth they were able to take with them. They sort of slunk off to Moab and, uh, and, and spent it all there. And Ruth came back and Naomi came back uh, impoverished and, and not able to work the land that she owned. And so she needed to come to somebody and say, hey, can you take on me and my family and take on my land and make this thing work again so that I'll be provided for? So just a very practical relationship that says, hey, can you, can you bring your wealth into uh, my, onto my land, and can we make this land produce food for our family and wealth and resource for us? And that's how it worked. And that's what we see when we jump forward uh, to Ruth uh, chapter 4, verses 9 to 10. It says, Then Boaz said to the elders, and this is the man that Ruth uh, is ultimately marries, that Naomi sort of says, Hey, this is the man that's our kinsman redeemer. Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, You are witnesses today that I bought from Naomi all the property of Abimelech, Kilian, and Malhan. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malhan, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in this hometown. You are all witnesses today. So it's a way of ensuring that that inheritance that really belonged to the children of Ruth uh, and the children of Naomi and that family line would be able to be established and that they would still be able to live on the land that had been assigned to them uh, back when uh, the land was, uh, was divided up among the Jewish people who had entered into it. And so there's this deep connection to this land and this uh, desire in, in the heart of people to stay connected to it and to stay resourced and to stay uh, provided for it. And when you look to the meaning of this, um, what is it in this story that we're supposed to take? What are we supposed to see in it? Like, why was this text written? Um, it, it's sort of hard to see written in the text because there's nowhere that it sort of says in the scriptures, this was written to be a story of a redeemer. So you go back to the, uh, the early Jewish writers and rabbis who have studied this and looked at it over the years, and I came across this quote from one of the ancient rabbis. This is translated into English, obviously. He says, In Ruth, Boaz as Gaal, kinsman redeemer, brings to us the highest level of religious hope and fulfillment. He brings the sustaining restoration of the abundant life of body and soul. This is an act of redeeming that gives us the continuation and sustaining of the life force of Adonai and speaks to our yearning for Messiah, Messiah, the final king of David's line. If we attune our ears carefully to Ruth's message, we will hear the voice of Messiah, our Redeemer. And it's very interesting. You don't often hear uh, Messiah spoken of as Redeemer in, in Jewish writings. But when you, when you see it in the book of Ruth and a number and a few other places, you see this, this tie to Messiah, not only as a warrior, not only as a leader, not only as a savior, but also this tie to a Redeemer. And we see, of course, in that a reflection of our relationship with Christ, with him as our Redeemer. 
And so the question is, like, that's, that's sort of there, it's sort of in the text the Jewish rabbis interpret it. Is, is there a way that we can look to the text to see our connection to Christ? Obviously there in so many uh, sort of images and metaphors. What I thought would be sort of fun to look at was what are the qualifications of a kinsman redeemer? What were Boaz's qualifications? Uh, again, we're not going to get into the details of how that transaction happened and how it all worked out. Uh, it had something to do with trading of sandals. That's, that's all I'm going to give you. Uh, that, that when, they, when they did a deal like that for land, the person who previously had an interest in it would give up um, his sandal and give it to the person who, uh, who was taking the land on. And the person who was taking the land on would, would give him his sandal. And they would walk about with each with each other's sandals on. It has something to do with iCloud and iTunes and Apple Pay. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how that goes. But I guess you see some guy walking down the road and he's like, I've got your sandal, man. You can't take this land back. You remember the sandal? And all the witnesses saw you give me the sandal. And so that was sort of the token of the transaction. It's sort of how it, how it worked. So, I mean, if you guys need to work deals on Kijiji or anything like that, it might be just one way to consider it. Um, Carlton Place buy and sell. Just throwing that out there. Uh, but the, the, the qualifications, and this is putting together uh, stuff from, you know, uh, all of this uh, woven stuff from the, the Jewish law because uh, there's different things that redeemers had roles in, and not just the, the protection of land. But Genesis 48, Exodus 6, 6, Leviticus 25, uh, later on in 25, and then in chapter 27. Uh, these things, I think, are, are, are the fundamental qualifications of what it means to be a redeemer. Your de- redeemer had to be kin, right? Because the property was going to stay in your, in your family line. Uh, the redeemer had to be willing to do it. It's kind of obvious, but there's a clause on that. Uh, he had to be able to do it. So he had to have uh, the resources to be able to come and take and work the land. And very often there was an actual price that needed to be paid, a price of, of, uh, of currency. And so let's ask these questions. Is Jesus our kin? And we look to Hebrews, and some of this stuff is so powerful. For he who sacrifices and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them, us, brothers. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that's the payment, uh, for uh, the sins of the people. That's the whole story of the incarnation, right from uh, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, jumping to 1.7. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, Jesus came to be like us, to be with us. Uh, God is his Father. God is our Father. We are brothers. And so we have this person, Jesus, who is our kinsman, who is identified fully with us. He is alongside of us, just as he is our God. He is fully man and fully God. Was he willing? We look to John chapter 10, 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He's talking about his life. No one takes this from me. Pilate, you're not taking this from me. Uh, Nobody has stolen my life here. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Was Jesus able? Romans 5, 18 to 19. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also... One righteous act resulted in justification. 
Think of this one righteous act. Jesus Christ on the cross for you and I. That perfect whole life, fully God, fully man, dead and dying, dead on the cross, is enough to pay for the sins of every human being who has ever walked the face of the earth and ever will. It's how precious, it's how magnificent, it's how beautiful his life is. He is enough. One act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, talking about Adam, the many were made sinners, so through the disobedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. Or the obedience of one man, sorry, will be made righteous. So yeah, he was able to do this. Did he pay in full? Just says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, not just from a little bit of unrighteousness, but from all, unright- all unrighteousness. He who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. I think this is something that, that really we need to actually take on board as, as believers in a new way, uh, is to understand the sufficiency of what Christ's sacrifice was. I think we, we often tie uh, forgiveness to a, a memory, of a, a, a memory of redemption, a time we put our hand up in a meeting, a time we were feeling guilty, and Jesus came and, and dealt with that thing, but I don't know if he has enough uh, to deal with the rest. I'm carrying all this other stuff inside. I don't know uh, in, in deep in my heart that Jesus can, can deal with that. We need to know that his sacrifice once for all was sufficient for all our sins, sufficient for all our sins. And we need to tell our friends about that, that he's sufficient for them too. And so we have this this incredible redeemer, this incredible husband, this incredible person who has given himself for us, who has everything that we need uh, to pay, to draw us out of poverty, spiritual impoverishment, out of our sin, out of our brokenness, and into life. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He is enough. He is enough. He is qualified to be your husband. He is qualified to be your savior. And so we take that and and we just sort of stand in awe of the incredible redemption of Christ and then we we think to ourselves how do we knowing this knowing that he's able to do all of this knowing that he is our Boaz how do we uh, how do we respond to him how do we approach him how do we draw near to him and that's just something that I want us to take again there's so much that we can take out of the story of Ruth but I just want to take a little bit of that out of the out of the romance out of the courtship that we see in Ruth chapter 3 so I'm just going to read 3 1 to 10 and then we'll just notice some little things we'll go back and just notice a few things about it. Then Naomi, uh, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you? That it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? Again, that word is Goal, our redeemer. In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. 
Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. This is all sounding, should be all sounding very weird to our North American ears, but we'll unpack it. And he said to her, all that you shall say to me, I will do. And that's just something for all the kids in the room when you're thinking of your parents, when they give you instructions, all that they say to you, you should do. Um, uh, going on to verse six. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself and there was a woman lying at his feet. He said, who are you? We'll just notice some things. We'll pick up the story from there. Uh, what I want to see, uh, I think going back to that first slide, Ruth uh, chapter 3, 1 to 10, you can go on to that uh, one where some pieces are highlighted there, Toby. Uh, I, just think it's a, I just think it's really interesting for us. Like, we are people who are redeemed. We are people who can come to the Lord just as we are. We are people who can come uh, just knowing that there's grace. We can come with the, the biggest messes in our lives. So we know that we can come and approach God like that. Um, but there's something, I think, really beautiful about the intentionality and the preparation in the approach of Ruth here that we can, we can learn as we approach our Redeemer. If we look in verse 3, it just says this. This is Naomi's instruction for her. Therefore, wash yourself. For wash yourself. We know that we can't take away our own sin. But there's something about uh, what we see in Naomi and her desire to connect with her Redeemer and her desire for Ruth to, to make this relationship and to make it work, that she thought it was worth being intentional. She thought it was worth uh, cleansing herself. She thought it was worth being whole. I think for us, as we approach God in worship, as we approach God in prayer, this is why we do confession. This is why we come before the Lord and we say, hey, Lord, I, I know uh, I am sinful. I know that I have walked through uh, these things. I know that I have uh, I've done these things. I have seen these things. I have, I have uh, seen impurity. I have made myself unclean before you. I have uh, wanted things that I shouldn't want. I have spent too much time on Instagram. Whatever it is uh, that, that is the stuff that has made you unclean, it's worth coming before the Lord. Uh, confession is a New Testament practice. As we come into the presence of God, uh, we can come with confession confession and ask him to wash us and to cleanse us rather than to just presume uh, to come and to just force him to take us as we are. It's, it's as an act of love that we come uh, confessing, that we come opening our hearts that way. And that says this, and anoint yourself. And again, I'm not sure that the author had all of this connection in mind when he wrote it, but uh, there's something there that I think is beautiful uh, in terms of uh, Naomi uh, saying to Ruth, Ruth, put a, put a fragrance on yourself. Make it so that, so that you, you smell good. You are washed. And then you should have something on you that is, a, that is a fragrance of cleanness, a fragrance of goodness. And we think we should come into the presence of God asking for the Holy Spirit. We should come into the presence of God with hearts of worship. Whenever you see uh, an anointing thing happening in the Old Testament and in the temple and in, in the tabernacle, that, that anointing 
uh, that, that fragrance is representing the coming of the Holy Spirit. So when we come before our, our God, when we come before our Savior, we say, Lord, Holy Spirit, come and be present among us. And that's one of the ancient prayers of the church, come Holy Spirit. And then she puts on her best garment and she goes down to the threshing floor. And so I think, I don't know what to say about, about the garments, except that it's not a bad thing for us to come before the Lord and wanting to do excellence, to wanting to uh, come before him beautifully, to wanting to come before him thoughtfully. That's why we as a worship team, to the best of our ability, we, we try to, when we can, rehearse songs and, and learn and, and grow and to do them well and to do them musically well, because we want what we're offering to the Lord to be a dra- a nice dressing, a nice, nice clothing for him. Again, we can come, and he forgives us. We come with all our messes. We come just as we are. But, but this loving heart of, of Naomi wanting to reach out to her kinsman redeemer says, hey, let's do this with a little bit of intention. Let's do this well. And so she comes. And then I think this is just a, just a phenomenal thing to note in the text. Then Naomi instructs her to go after Boaz has, has eaten and he's finished his work and he's sleeping. So Naomi says to Ruth, she says, hey, I want you to uh, wash yourself. I want you to put on your best clothes. I want you to anoint yourself, but then go to him at a time when it's dark and he can't even see you. And while he's asleep, and then come in under uh, his, his blanket. And I just think that's amazing, right? There, there are times when, when a, that, that act of those intentional things, those ways that we prepare ourselves for the Lord, again, we know he'll, he'll accept us. He'll, he'll care for us. We know that we'll still come under his covering. But those acts of love, there's something in them that's for us in the sense that we, um, we need, I think, as people sometimes, these rituals of, of preparing our hearts for the Lord so that we can be uh, coming to him with good hearts. Uh, Boaz wasn't going to see her until the morning, right? And she's going to get up off the ground and she was going to have chaff on her from the threshing floor and have to brush all of that off and be 12 hours out from having put on her anointing oil. There's a, there's, a, there's a way in which uh, our preparation to the best of our ability happens ahead of knowing how the relationship is going to work out. There's an aspect of faith in it, isn't there? There's an aspect of faith. There's an aspect of, of coming forward. So then in verse 4, it says, Then it shall be when he lies down, you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and, and lie down. Now, the threshing floor in, in Jewish culture was, uh, was, was a very interesting place. Uh, it was just a very practical place from the, from the perspective of uh, a place where they needed to thresh grain. But it also had a meaning in, in the surrounding culture in that it was a place where very often in the celebration of harvest and in the longing for great harvest, uh, in the pagan cultures surrounding uh, the Jewish people, there would often be idols set up in that space. And there would often be, at harvest time, essentially parties that were just very, very hedonistic and, and often very wild sexuality and, and all kinds.
kinds of uh, things going there. Uh, there was in these smaller communities that were more rural, there weren't pagan temples there, but idols could be brought in this place and these could be, become a place of worship and a place of hedonism and a place of messes. And we know that that's not who Boaz was. We see from earlier on that he was a righteous man, but it's kind of into that context that if you sort of are thinking from outside the culture and look at that, you think, okay, so you can interpret this to say that Ruth just came in under his cloak and, and, and basically slept with him and had sex with him. We just don't see that in the text. When we see Boaz wakes up at midnight and discovers her there, so she didn't come to him with a seduction. She didn't come to him with any of that. She came to him with this, this incredible purity, and she, she lay down, she lifted up the edge of his cloak and lay down crossways at his feet. A sign of humility, a sign of submission, a sign of, of service, just simply wanting her body to, to warm his feet. So it's just incredible beauty and incredible uh, purity there. And I think we see something for us in that as well as we approach our Redeemer. We want to approach as servants. We want to approach uh, in ways that are pure, in ways that are loving. This image takes us forward to Mary Magdalene, where she came before Jesus uh, in the group of people, and she, she took perfume and, and broke it open, and she washed his feet uh, with her hair. She just came in love as a servant. And so uh, that's what Ruth did. She just came in this incredibly pure way in, a, in the context of a pagan culture where it could have been very dark and it could, have been, it could have been sexual and it could have been broken, but she came with humility and with purity and with the heart of a servant. And so later when Boaz wakes up, jumping ahead uh, to verse uh, 9, uh, he wakes up and says, who are you? why is this woman at my feet? This is a strange and unusual thing. Who are you? And she says, I'm Ruth. I'm your maidservant. She calls herself a servant. I'm under your wing. Take your maidservant under your wing for you're a close relative. She essentially makes a marriage proposal here. She says, uh, you're our kinsman redeemer. Will you, will you take me in? Just as I'm here under the, the bottom of your cloak, Will you take me in this very humble place, this, uh, as a very humble person? Will you take me under the shadow of, of your protection? And then his response shows us what we were seeing in her approach. He said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, that you did not go uh, after young men, whether rich or poor. So he takes her coming under his cloak quietly at night and, and warming his feet. And he says, you have shown more kindness. And that word kindness is, is a Hebrew word chesed, which we see uh, all throughout the Old Testament and is very often translated loving kindness. You've shown me loving kindness. Like there's a kind of kindness of the Lord's that is like, uh, I, I sort of take pity on you. I'll sort of provide for you because you just need it. And I got, I'm, I'm the one who's got the stuff and I'll, I'll care for you. Um, but what we see in, in the text when we think of God's love for us and we see it in uh, Ruth's love for, for Boaz is that there is a, a loving kindness. There is an affectionate kindness. There is a, a heart of kindness. Um, and he, that's what he interprets it. He, he says, um, you've shown more 
at the end than the beginning. And you didn't go after young men, whether rich or poor. You know, you had every opportunity to just go and try to find uh, provision for yourself uh, with, uh, with, with men that were rich, with men that have all kinds of money, with other men that could do that, who were younger, who were more attractive, um, and, and that they were just people that, you know, you could have a sexual relationship with that was sort of unbridled and free and fun. And you could have totally gone that way of fulfilling your natural desires. But you came to me, an old man, Boaz is thought to be between the ages of 40 and, and 80 years old and, and not a lot of life left in him. But she comes to him. She has seen his kindness and his generosity. And she comes with kindness and generosity not to fulfill uh, her own desires, not to just get what she wants, but she's come with affection and, and love for this older man. And he received this, this uh, kindly. And I think that's where that leaves us in terms of taking uh, some meaning from the text. Um, Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, wants our chesed. He wants our love. He wants our, our loving kindness. He wants us to be people who are not going after our own desires, not going after uh, the things that will just, just fulfill us and make us feel better, uh, other forms of provision that are out there in the world. He wants us to come to him and to bring him loving kindness and to just see this elsewhere in the scriptures. And there are just dozens of verses that point to the idea that God wants our love, that God wants our hearts. Uh, we, we can look at, we're just going to look at four of them. Second Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro over all the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are completely his. He wants our hearts. Psalm 51, 16 to 17. Uh, you take no pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. The Lord wants our hearts. He wants our contrite hearts. Jesus is talking about in Matthew 15 when he looks at the people of Israel. These people honor me with their lips. He's talking about the Pharisees. But their hearts are far from me. He wants your heart. And then we jump to Revelation uh, chapter 2, verse 4. And this is something we've been talking about as a senior leadership community. Recovering our, our first love. But I have this against you. You've abandoned your first love. There's something in this divine romance. We, we, we celebrate our salvation. We celebrate our redeemedness. We celebrate the provision that God has given us. Uh, we do good works to serve and love and care. There's all of these things that are seen as almost practical spin-off uh, benefits of our relationship with God. But above all of that, he wants your heart. What Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, wants from us is our hearts. And of course, if he has your heart, he has all the service and, and worship and love and songs and everything else anyway. Right? But he wants us to be people who yearn for him. The worship team can come forward. Uh, he wants us to be people who long for him. He wants us to be people who are hungry for him, hungry to know him. And so we go back to that verse that we sang just a, a few minutes ago. 
your joy is mine, yet why, why am I fine with all this singing and bringing grain? Like, like this is good. This relationship we have where we're saved is good. It, it's great. It's wonderful. Uh, all of the good works and deeds that we try to do, they never feel like enough, but they're, they're good. But in light of him, will we yearn for him? Will he capture our hearts? Will he be our first love? Will he be our first affection? Will he be what we adore? Will he be what, when we wake up in the morning, our hearts chase after? Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovchurch.ca.